Father in heaven, Lord, each and every one of us here this afternoon has sinned against you and against heaven. And Father, we are not worthy to be called your daughters or your sons. But Father, your son will forever be worthy to be called our Savior. And so we ask that it is he and not me that speaks to us this afternoon. Bless us, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm sure most of you are familiar with the story of Abraham and Isaac. Abraham has waited how long to have a son? 100 years. He waits 100 years to have a son from his wife, Sarah. And then once he has that son, God asks him to do something very specific. He says, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. The Bible says that Abraham rose early that morning then, the next morning. He got his donkey. He took two young men with him and took his son Isaac. And he had cut the wood that he was going to use for the offering and he was heading towards the place that God had sent him. And three days journey, he sees the place and Abraham says to the two young men, stay here. Stay here because me and my son, we're going to go and worship and then we're going to come back. Abraham knows that God has asked for a sacrifice, a sacrifice that's going to claim the life of his son, right? But still he says to the two young men, wait there, me and my son are coming back. Because Abraham believes that even if he takes the life of his son, that God is going to restore his life because the Lord promised. The Lord promised that through Isaac, his nation would be as numbered as the sand of the sea. And this is the first time in the Bible that we come across the word worship. Often we think of worship as kind of, you know, exuberant, sometimes extravagant, very, a lot of singing and, and other things involved. But this right here is the first time the Bible mentions worship. We can see just from this alone that there is no worship without sacrifice. You cannot have worship if there's no sacrifice. We have nothing to worship if we don't recognize the sacrifice. Are you with me? So he goes and he takes his son. He lays him upon the altar and, and Isaac, I can imagine, well, at least in my own mind, Isaac is kind of freaking out. He's like, well, where, where's the lamb? His father puts him on the, on, the, on the offering table and ties him. and He's about to take, well, he takes the blade and lifts it over his son's neck. And just as he's about to plunge, you know the story, he hears his name, Abraham, Abraham. Says, here I am. And the Lord provides him a substitute. I'm going to make an appeal at the beginning of the sermon. There is an altar. An altar of sacrifice. And if we're not willing to place everything on that altar from the beginning, then we're not going to hear God's voice. Because if there's things in our life that we're keeping from Him now, how is He going to speak to us later? And here's the thing, Isaac's a good kid. Isaac is, is a promise from God. He's not a bad thing. So often we think, well, the bad things need to go on the altar. You know, the music that we listen to, maybe that needs to go onto the altar. And the entertainment that we involve ourselves, that goes into the altar. And our friends that we kind of know that we shouldn't be hanging around, yeah, we'll put that onto the altar. But right here, Abraham's putting his son whom he loves on the altar. 
God is asking that everything goes on. Everything. Whether that be, you know, the choices that we make, like I said, in regards to entertainment, whether it be the choices that we make in regards to clothing, in regards to food, in regards to how we spend our time, in regards to what our ideas and wishes are for the future, when we want big houses and big cars, He wants everything to go on the altar. And the good thing is God will decide what comes off. God decided Isaac could come off the altar. And when we lay everything on the altar and allow God to take it off, we can be sure that that's what God wants for us. Are you willing to lay everything on the altar? Think about that. Is there something in your life that you're saying, Lord, I can't put that on the table. I just can't. Let me tell you something. If there is something, I don't think it will be there by the end of the message. If there's something in your life you're like, well, I'm not sure. I don't know if I can actually give this up. I think by the end of the sermon, you'll be willing to put it on the altar. Can we pray for that? Father in heaven, we ask if there's anything on our hearts, even now, even mine. Father, speak to us. Speak to us through your word. Send your spirit to convict our hearts. Help us at the end of this to truly be able to sing, I surrender all and not I surrender some. We claim the promise that your word will not return void. In Jesus' name, amen. I want to tell you a story. Not too dissimilar to the story that I shared with you this morning. I want you to imagine a man, and this man's just got one son. You see, when we look at the character of the father, we can't help but look at the character of the son. Are you with me? I want you to imagine that there's a man with one son. In fact, be that man, be that person, be that person that has one son. Be that Abraham who's waited so long to have a child. And picture that they have the best relationship. Picture that they spend almost all day, each and every day, in one another's company. Picture that they like to do all kinds of things together. They like to, to go for long mountain walks together. And they like to go fishing together. And they like to go running in the morning together. And they do their worships together. And, 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 and this father, this, this parent and their child, they're tight. Nothing separates them. I want you to imagine that one day... You're coming home from work. And as you're driving home from work, you know, you turn on the radio. It's not Sabbath, so you listen to the radio. And you're listening to the radio and you hear, after a long day's of work, a long, day, a long day's work, you hear that a few people over in, let's say, Pakistan have died of some random virus that, you know, scientists are unfamiliar with. And you hear it, and as we so often do when we hear of such calamities, we kind of bypass them because we're so, you know, desensitized to them now that they've just become something else, another piece of news, other lives that have been lost that don't really affect ours. And then you just go home and, you know, the day kind of catches up with you. You're tired, you go to bed, you wake up in the morning, you turn on the news. And then you see that overnight this virus seems to have spread miles and miles and miles. And now it's in all of the surrounding countries. And it's in India and it's, it's spreading into Iran. And, and many more lives are being taken. And so it kind of perks your interest. It's, it's current news. And then you see, you know, what's, what's the big channel over here, the big TV channel in the U.S.? CNN, Fox, ABC, NBC, ABC, DEFG, whatever you want to call it. 
And we need to imagine that on these channels, now they're, they're talking about this, the widespread of this particular virus. And they still don't have a name for it. But with this virus, overnight, you know, 30,000 people have, have died, whereas it was just three people at the beginning. And it starts to get a little concerning. You start to see politicians and other people. And let's say, you know, the Queen. You guys know the Queen, right? Yeah, the Queen, she comes on the television and she's like, you know, well, we're really scared that it might come to, to, to England and, and, you know, we're praying, probably not, but we're praying that it's, it's not going to come to these borders and we're going to close it and we're going to leave Europe. Wait, wrong um, And then, so, so we're going we're gonna to close the borders and it's not going to come in and we're going to make sure. And then, you know, you see her little person on the side like, it's already here. And then, you know, they kind of close down that because it's already reached England and it's spreading throughout London. And then President, Ob President Trump, <laughs> President Trump comes on and he's very defiant. He's like, this is not coming in. <laughs> we're not going to let this in. I didn't think this through. And so... <laughs> And so we're not going to let this in. It's not, it's not coming in. We're closing the borders. We're going to build a wall if you want. And then so they're very defiant, right? And so you think, yes, you know, this isn't going to come into America. The next day, and you hear, there's been outbreaks in Loma Linda. Right across California, Oregon and Washington and every other state that's around there that I'm unfamiliar with. And it's here. It's just taking lies, and it's, it, seems like, it seems like there's no real symptoms. It just seems like, you know, you have it, and within two or three days, you're practically on your deathbed. And all of these politicians come on TV, you know, the Prime Minister of France, or the President, or whatever they have now, kind of like, you know, we're closing the borders, and everyone's trying to stop it from coming in, but it just, it can't be kept out. It goes everywhere. It's taking life after life after life after life. And so then let's say the, the county sheriff comes around the area, and he says this. He says, guys, it's getting to the point where this is literally a mass outbreak, and, you know, extinction is on the horizon. We need to act, and we need to act fast. And scientists have discovered that they can perhaps find a cure if they can find someone that is, as of yet, unaffected. And so they say, okay, this is what's going to happen. If you hear a siren going down your neighborhood, you're to leave your house with all of your family and you walk behind that, 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 that ambulance and everyone goes with it and it leads you to the hospital and there everyone gets checked. And so you're sitting down there and you're with your spouse and you're with your child. And soon enough, you hear the siren. You look at each other, that kind of ominous look. You know what time it is. And you leave. And you're walking down the road. Husband, child, wife, hand in hand. You're looking at everyone's faces and everyone's down. Depression is rife. Everyone's scared. Everyone's fearing for what could actually happen to the human race at this time. And they're just walking. And no one's really saying anything. Everyone's quiet. Everyone looks bleak. Everyone's sad. And you're just walking. You get to the hospital and the nurses come out and they're, they're all frantic, running around the place, trying to get everything done. And they say, if you hear your name, you come, you get tested, and then you go and you wait in the hospital. And when there's no room left in the hospital, you go and wait in the parking lot. And when there's no room in the parking lot, you kind of just stay in the area. Your name is called, you go, they take a sample, they take a sample from your spouse, they take a sample from your child, and then you just wait, and you wait hours and hours and hours. 
You look around. You haven't seen a smile in days. No one's really speaking to anyone else. People are crying. Family members from every family are dying. There's this worldwide crisis and no one knows how they can handle it. And then out of nowhere, this nurse just, you know, barges through one of the doors and she comes out and she has a clipboard in her hand and she's trying to read the surname and she reads your name. And you kind of want to hear it a second time just to make sure, but she says, your name. And so you, you half hesitantly raise your hand, kind of reluctantly because you wanted there to be a cure, but you didn't want it to be from you. And she comes and she says, okay, are you such and such? And you're like, yeah, but actually the specific person that you're referring to, that would be my son. So the nurse looks at you and she says, oh, okay, um, let's go inside. And so you follow her inside and they sit you in this empty waiting room. And they explain to you that your son, your only son, doesn't have the infection. And so far, worldwide, is the only chance they've got of getting rid of this virus. And so they hand you a clipboard that you have to fill out, you know, sign all the little details. And you're signing. You're going through, putting signature after signature after signature. And then you see at the bottom, we have to put in your son's name. And then it has how much blood they require, how many pints of blood. And it just has a tick box. And you're like, well, how do I answer that? What do I do there? And the nurse says, well, you just, you just have to tick it. And you're like, well, what does that mean? Well, and she explains. You see, when we were planning all this, getting everything together so quickly, we didn't think that we were going to have to use a minor. And since he is so small, we're going to need all of his blood. And there's no other way. There's no other way. No, they offer you a few minutes to sit down and you look at your spouse and your opposite. They're crying and they don't know what to do. They don't know what to say. Your child's just dead. No idea what's going on. Just looking around. Waiting for answers. Waiting for some sort of explanation. What do you say? What do you say to your spouse? What do you say to the child? Sooner or later, the, the nurse comes back in with a doctor. Doctor's half happy, half upset. Knows that there's a good chance that the world will be saved. Says he's going to have to take your son now. Takes his hand, starts to walk down the center aisle of the hospital, and you're just watching. Your son is walking down the hallway with someone that you've never, you've never met before, and you're never going to see him again, and he's just walking. And each few steps, he's looking back like... And those doors close. And that's it. You just sit there. You sit there for hours. 
And then these nurses just again come flying out the door and they're running down and they run right past you out into the parking lot. And like, we've done it, we've done it, we've done it, we found the cure, we found the cure. And everyone starts to rush in and everyone wants this cure and you know, they're, they're making more and more of it as fast as they can. And everyone's so excited and it hits mainstream news and all the states are rejoicing, the presidents and the prime ministers. And there's fireworks and there's celebrations and you're just sitting in the room. You're just sitting in the room. Eventually people come, government people. They come and they sit down with you and they express their condolences. They say how sorry they are for everything that's happened, but how grateful they are. And then, you know, they do the courteous thing. They offer to cover all the funeral costs and everything. I say, you know, we'll give you the biggest building to the funeral, you know, biggest cathedral or whatever you want to call it. And, you know, since, since practically everyone is still alive because of your one son, you say, well, you know what? You might as well just invite everyone. And so it's an open funeral. Anyone can come. Whether you've been affected or not, you can come. And so a few days go by and you're sorting out the little arrangements. And before you know it, you're standing outside the church. You're standing next to that three-foot-long coffin. You're one side, your spouse is the other side. And you lift. And you start to walk up the steps. And you get to the front door. And there's two ushers there, and they just open the door, and you just walk in. And you look up, and no one's even there. Nobody's even there. And guess what? The people that are there, you can see by their face that they don't even want to be there. They're just there because, you know, they're locals. How would you feel? You know, it's funny that stories like this can touch us. It's funny like stories like this can just hush a room. But this is exactly what happened. This is exactly what happened to Christ. This is exactly what happened to the Father. The whole world is sick. The virus is spreading rapidly. And there's only one solution. And that's for the son to lose his life. And when he gives up his life and he saves everyone and, and the funeral is open for everyone to come in and for everyone to, to give their thanks that he done this, at that time no one even cares. And the people that do care, the people that do come to the churches and the people that do fill up the pews, they don't even want to be here. Welcome to our church, ladies and gentlemen. Well, we come because of guilt. Not because of love. When we come to see what we can get rather than what we can give. The father lost his son. If anyone that we knew was a parent lost their son, we'd be around their house and we'd be crying and we'd be consoling them and our arms would be around their shoulder. We'd be doing anything that they can. But when we read, when we go to Matthew chapter 7, chapter 27, and we read how the father lost his son, we just read through that like it's fiction. We're like, oh, Jesus died on the cross. Oh, praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Have mercy. Have mercy that the death of Christ has become so nominal to us that we read it and we gloss over it as a devotional and we just go about our day. Turn with me, if you will, to the book of Matthew. 
Sorry, let's go to Luke. Watch your Luke turn to Luke 23. Whilst you're there, I'm going to read to you a little from Matthew. Matthew chapter 27. It says from verse 45, head to Luke 23. It says, Now from the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the land unto the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lamai shabachthani. That is to say, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Some of them that stood there when they heard that said, this man called for Elias. And straight away, one of them ran, took a sponge, filled it with vinegar, put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. And you know the rest of the story. He gives up the ghost. He loses his life at that hour. Luke 23 says in verse 44 also, And it was about the sixth hour, and there was darkness over all the earth until the ninth hour. The way that the people... In that place, primarily Jews, some Romans also, the way that they calculated time was they started at sunrise, which generally right throughout the year was around about 6 a.m. And the first hour would just be one hour after 6 a.m., so it would be 7. And they would calculate like that. So when you get to the sixth hour, what's 6 plus 6? 12. And so at 12, at exactly midday, where should the sun be? The sun should be at its highest, and it should be at its hottest, and it should be at its brightest. But from that sixth hour, from midday right through to what we would call 3 p.m., there was a darkness that covered the face of the earth. Why? Why? Let me read to you from one of my favorite books. It's called Desire of Ages. It says, Upon Christ as our substitute and surety was laid upon the iniquity of us all. He was counted a transgressor that he might redeem us from the condemnation of the law. The guilt of every descendant of Adam was pressing upon his heart. The wrath of God against sin, the terrible manifestation of his displeasure because of iniquity, filled the soul of the Son with consternation. All his life, Christ had been publishing to a fallen world the good news of the Father's mercy and pardoning love. Salvation for the chief of sinners was his theme. But now with the terrible weight of guilt, he bears, he cannot see the Father's reconciling face. It says the withdrawal of the divine countenance from the Savior in this hour of supreme anguish, or miss this, pierced his heart with such a sorrow that can never be fully understood by men. And then she says this, so great was this agony that his physical pain was hardly felt. Anyone, ever, anyone here ever been crucified? Probably not. When you look at the anatomy of the crucifixion, the arms are spread wide, the feet held together, one nail through the palm of each hand, or sometimes the wrist, and then another longer nail through feet overlapping right into the wood. And they were done in such a way where the body would be held up by the arms. 
In essence, the body would sink and the arms would be there holding it up. Now watch this. Whenever that happens, it puts so much pressure on your lungs that you can't breathe in. So just to inhale, Christ would have had to pull down on his hands to lift up his body for the space in his lungs to be present so he could inhale and then to breathe out, he would have to drop again. And he would have to do that at every single breath for three hours. I don't know how many times you breathe in three hours, but it's more than once. Every single time he had to go through that. And we read it like it's just, man, I'm so grateful. The book goes on to say, Satan with his fierce temptations wrung the heart of Jesus, wrung it the way that you wring a towel or a flannel when you've just dried up whatever mess you've created. Satan wrung the heart of Jesus. The Savior, it says, could not see through the portals of the tomb. Hope did not present to him his coming forth from the grave, a conqueror, or tell him of the Father's acceptance of his sacrifice. He feared that sin was so offensive to God that their separation was to be eternal. Christ felt the anguish which the sinner will feel when mercy shall no longer plead for the guilty race. It was the sense of sin, bringing the Father's wrath upon him as man's substitute, that made the cup he drank so bitter and broke the heart of the Son of God. One time I'm reading, I'm reading through the Psalms. I get to Psalm chapter 18. Turn with me, if you would, to Psalm chapter 18. And you'll find that perhaps the, the beginning in fact, go to Psalms chapter 22, sorry. Psalms chapter 22 it says this in verse 1. We should be familiar with these words. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Ever heard those words before? This is what we call a messianic psalm. A psalm that David would have written or sung at the time, but that was pointing forward to an experience that Christ himself was going to have. Says it word for word. Go back a few chapters to Psalms 18 now. And watch what David writes about in Psalms 18, chapter 3. Sorry, verse 3. Psalms 18, verse 3 says, I will call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised. So shall I be saved from mine enemies. The sorrows of death compassed me and the floods of ungodly men made me afraid. I'm thinking maybe this is talking about the battle that he had with Saul. It goes on to say, um, the sorrows of hell compassed me, the snares of death prevented me. In my distress, I called upon the Lord and cried unto my God. He heard my voice out of his temple and my cry came before him even to his, ne- even to his ears. Now watch verse 7. Verse 7 says, Then the earth shook and trembled. The foundations also of the hills moved and were shaken because he was wroth. David is talking about some great earthquake that takes place. And I'm looking through the life of David. I'm seeing there's no earthquake there. What's he talking about? What is this earthquake where the earth shook and the earth trembled and the foundations of the hills were moved because God was angry? And 
We read on Desire of Ages. We're going to pull this all together. With amazement, angels witness the Savior's despairing agony. The hosts of human, sorry, the host of heaven veiled their faces from the fearful sight. It says, inanimate nature expressed sympathy with its insulted and dying author. The sun refused to look upon the awful scene. Nature refused to watch Christ die. It says its full bright rays were illuminating the earth at midday when suddenly it seemed to be blotted out. Complete darkness like a funeral pall enveloped the cross. There was darkness over the land until the ninth hour. She says this, there was no eclipse or other natural cause for this darkness which was as deep as midnight without moon or stars. It was a miraculous testimony given by God that the faith of after generations may be confirmed. So now I'm kind of interesting. I'm interested now. I'm thinking, okay, the, the sun going dark goes dark for a reason. This is not an eclipse just happened to, you know, bypass the sun when, when Christ was dying. There's a reason for this darkness. And so now I'm digging the word. I'm trying to find what's the reason for this darkness. Psalms 22 verse 16 says this, David writing again, For dogs have compassed me. The assembly of the wicked have enclosed me. And then David says, they pierced my hands and my feet. I'm thinking, David, are you okay? Because no one pierced your hands. And no one pierced your feet. And that's when, it's, that's when it starts to click to me that perhaps David is writing about what Christ is going through and not what he is currently going through. Then he says this, they pierced my hands and my feet and I may tell all of my bones. He's saying none of my bones were broken. Is this ringing any bells? says, they look and they stare at me. He says, they part my garments among themselves and they cast lots upon my vesture. David is seeing the cross. He's seeing exactly what's taking place at Calvary thousand, uh, a thousand and so years later. Picking up back in Psalms 18. Trust me, we're going to tie all this together. It says in Psalms 18 verse 7. Then the earth shook and trembled. The foundations also of the hills moved and were shaken because he was wroth. It says there went up a smoke out of his nostrils and fire came out of his mouth. Coals were kindled by it. Now watch this. David is writing about the experience that's taking place on the cross. And then David says this. He says, he bowed the heavens also and came down. If Christ is, in the, is on the cross, who is in heaven? The Father's in heaven. It says, he bowed the heavens also and came down. Watch what it says next. It says, and darkness was where? Under his feet. It says, he rode upon a cherub and he did fly. Yes, he did fly upon the wings of the wind. He made darkness his secret place. His pavilion round about him were dark waters and thick clouds of the skies. Guys, let me tell you what's taking place right there on the cross. Christ is losing his life. The, the, the divine countenance is having its light withdrawn because he's bearing the complete burden of the sins of the world, both of past, present and future generations. And at that time, you can imagine the angels are watching. And they don't want to watch because what they're watching is horrible. But they're there and they're just waiting. They want to come down. They see their savior. They see their king. And they just want to come down. They want to help him. They want to take him off the cross. They want to ease his suffering. They want to wipe the blood from his brow. They want to free him from that pain. And they're just itching, but the father's holding them back. The father's saying, you can't. You can't go down. You can't go down. He needs to go through this. But eventually, eventually, 
the father says enough is enough. I've watched my son go through too much, he says. And the Bible says that he bowed the heavens and he came down. He made darkness his secret place. Quick question. If God was to appear right now, what would happen? What would happen? We'd be destroyed. We'd be, we'd be destroyed right out the face of the earth. Why? Because we would see his glory. The glory of a light so bright that our very beings can't handle. And so God sees his son. He sees his son dying on the cross. He sees tears coming from his eye. He sees that he's thirsting. He sees that he's crying. He says, I've had enough. I'm coming down to save him. But he thinks, well, if I just come down, everyone's going to die. So I need to protect the people that are killing my son and clothe myself in darkness so they can live whilst they kill him. That's the Father's love. He saved our life whilst we put His Son to death. Three hours. If we put the pieces together, then the Father got three hours. Spend eternity with someone, you've watched them be abused for practically 33 years in poverty. And then you get three hours. Three hours to watch him die. And still your concern is everyone else around him. Still your concern is the soldier that hit the first nail into his hand and the soldier that pierced both of his feet. That's what God's thinking. I want to be with my son so bad. But I need to figure out a way to do it without harming the people that are putting him to death. Continues, in that thick darkness, God's presence was hidden. He makes darkness his pavilion and concedes his, conceals his glory from the human eyes. Says God and his holy angels were beside the cross. The father was with his son. Yet his presence was not revealed. Had his glory flashed forth from the cloud, every human beholder would have been destroyed. You know what's the hardest part to read? And in that dreadful hour, Christ was not to be comforted with the Father's presence. He trod the winepress alone, and of the people, there was none with him. It says, in the thick darkness, God veiled the last human agony of his son. All who had seen Christ in his suffering had been convicted of his divinity. That face, once beheld by humanity, was never forgotten. As the face of Cain expressed his guilt as a murderer, so the face of Christ revealed innocence, sincerity, benevolence, the image of God. But his accusers would not give heed to the signet of heaven. Through long hours of agony, Christ had been gazed upon by a jeering multitude. Now he was mercifully hidden by the mantle of God. Jesus cried out on the cross, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me?
When he cried those words, the Father was right there. It was right there. Jesus is like, why do I have to go through this alone? The Father's there like, I wish I could just touch him on the shoulder and say, I'm here. I wish I could just let him know that he's not going through this alone. But if I comfort him now, then the sacrifice can't be accepted. It has to be him. It has to be just him. So I have to be there. I have to stand there with the rest of the angels. I'm going to be with my son for the last moments of his life. And I'm going to watch him die and he's going to think that I left him there alone. And I'm doing that to save you. I'm doing that to save you. Sometimes we doubt that God loves us. I made the point this morning that in John 17 verse 23, it says that just as much as God loves the Son, He loves us. And I told you I'd answer that question. How far would the Father go for the Son? Well, He'd come right down to heaven, right down to earth. He'd leave His throne empty to be there with His Son. So don't miss this point because sometimes we can just say, wow, that's amazing. God loves me. No, 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 no. Don't miss this. That means then that if God loves the Son as much as He loves us, when Christ was in dire need of help, the Father went there. And if He loves us as much as He loves Him, and that means in our darkest hours, when we feel the most alone, when we feel like we've trod the wine press alone and there is none with us, the Father is there. God the Father would lead the throne to be at your side. And I bet you He's done it. I don't know how it works. I don't know the theology. I don't care. The Bible says He done it for Christ and He loves us the way He loves Him. Loves us the way He loves Him. There's been times in my life where I've been alone. Times in your life when you've been alone. And we cry out for God and we're like, God, why are we going through this? Why aren't you here? Why can't I feel you? Why can't I touch you? And He's there. He's right there. And if he could just reach out and just touch your shoulder and let you know that you can get through it, if you just trust in his power to save your soul, he would do so. But he needs us to know. He needs us to know that when Christ was there on the cross, he had to go through it alone. And even though the Father was there, he would do anything to help him, but he had to go through it alone. I don't know where you are. I don't know where your struggles are. I don't know what causes you to fall on your knees every night. That struggle that you have. I don't know what it is. I don't need to know. You know. But I want you to know this. Our Father in heaven loves you too much to let you go through it alone. And if you've ever felt like you've gone through it alone, it hasn't happened hasn't happened. I know it feels like it's happened. And I know you wanted more. And I know that you needed more. But He's been there. He's been there. 
Those struggling nights when you can't pray because the burden of sin is pressing upon your mind and you feel like there's no way out. You feel like there's no way to overcome. He's been there. He sent angels that excel in strength and might to be there to encourage you, to strengthen you. He's been there. The Father so loved the world that He sent His Son. He sent His Son. He had to watch His Son die. He sent Him. Like as a father pitieth his children, so the Lord pity those that fear Him. I want to leave you with this one scripture. First Corinthians chapter 13. We know the chapter. But maybe we'll read it a little differently. Verse 4 says that love suffers long. Boy, does it suffer long. It says that it's kind. And that love doesn't envy. That it doesn't vaunt itself. That it is not puffed up that it doesn't behave itself unseemly look at this love seeks not her own the love of God is burning within the father's heart saying oh, I wish, wish I could just touch him wish I could just let him know it's okay wish I could just let her know it's okay wish I could just let them know that I'm there I've had dark hours Really dark hours. And I know many of you have had dark hours too. I told you this morning, this book doesn't make sense. It's just too deep. Too crazy. So unfathomable. That a love like this exists. But if the Father would leave heaven for Jesus... He'd leave heaven for you. And he'd leave heaven for me. Pretty sure he's done it a few times already. So I want to make this appeal. Given what you know now. Maybe you knew this already. That's fine. Given what you know now about the love of the Father. Is there anything that you won't put on the altar? Is there anything that you're still not willing to give up? I'm going to make an appeal because I believe these work. There's something that you want to give up. An aspect of your life that you haven't surrendered to God yet. There's never a better decision and never a better time to make a decision to surrender to Him when you hear about the love that He has for you. If there's anyone here that would like to make that decision today, wants to give up something, that wants to surrender their lives fully, maybe even for the first time to the Lord, I'm just going to ask that you make your way to the front here.
I'm going to have a prayer with you. Just don't feel pressured to come. Don't come because anyone else comes. Come if the Spirit is speaking to you. Praise the Lord, brother. If the Spirit is speaking to your heart, you've seen the love of God in a way that maybe you haven't seen it before. And you're like, you know what? I'll live for Him. I'll live for that God. You want to make that decision this afternoon? Just make your way to the front and let's have prayer together. I want to leave you with this thought. The book of Acts chapter 20 verse 35 says this, in essence. That it's a greater blessing to give than to receive. Yeah? It's a greater blessing to give than to receive. For God so loved the world that he gave. God so loved the world that he gave his only son. But it's a greater blessing to give than to receive. We've been blessed. We've been blessed by the life, the death, the resurrection, the ministry of Christ. But the Father's been blessed more. Through watching the changes that take place in our lives... Because of what Jesus has done, the Father has received the greater blessing. When he sees a heart surrender to him, he can look back at those words that he penned in John chapter 3.16 and say, I was blessed. I was blessed. So how about this? If it's a greater blessing to give, than to receive why don't you give him your heart why don't you give him your heart the whole thing not just the left side or the right side the upper ventricle the lower ventricle give him the whole thing if you believe that word that it's a greater blessing to give than to receive then the blessing is for you when you give him your heart. Just gonna wait a few more seconds. You wanna make that decision? Calm down, we're gonna to pray together. The blessing awaits you. It's a greater blessing to give than to receive. Let's give him our heart. Is there anyone else that would like to join us here at the front? standing next to someone, take their hand, rest your hand upon their shoulder. That person that you're standing next to, that person can help keep you accountable for the decisions that you make. Remember that today, 
you decided to give God your heart. He gave you the strength to make that decision. It's a greater blessing to give than to receive. Amen? Let's pray together. Father in heaven, there's nothing that we can do but surrender. And even the power to make that decision is given to us by you. Lord, I can't imagine what you went through on that day. Watching your son die. Being so close to him. And to him you were galaxies away. He trod the wine press alone. But you were there. And some of us might be in dark places right now, Lord. And there is no greater comfort than knowing that you are there. Everything that we've been through, as hard as it's been, you've been there. And we praise your name. Lord, you said it's a greater blessing to give than to receive. And so we give you our hearts. We ask that you would take these hearts of stone. And give us back hearts of flesh. Lord, one that can keep your judgments and your statutes in your Lord. Write your law even now, Lord. Send your spirit to write your law upon our heart. Give us that new covenant experience. Take our relationship with you to even deeper levels, Lord. To unreachable heights. Father, we commit our lives into your hands. Just as Christ did on that faithful day. We thank you. And we praise you. In Jesus' name, amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.